This morning as we return to our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have come to a most unusual passage of Scripture. And the reason I say it's most unusual is simply because we read something in these verses that we rarely read anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, only one other time in the New Testament do we read anything like this. The verses I'm referring to, the passage I'm referring to, the opening verses of Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read them to you and see if you can identify what's said in these verses that is so unusual and even rare. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. Now, Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, Do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been, who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, as you can see from this reading, Luke records for us a story about the time that Jesus healed a Roman centurion's slave. And he did it without even being in the presence of the slave. That in and of itself, that is a bit out of the ordinary, but it's not what makes this story so unusual. We also read in this story about how some Jewish elders from the town of Capernaum spoke highly about this Roman centurion to Jesus. They even commended him to Jesus, telling him how much this Gentile loved the Jewish people. They said he loves our nation, and he's even financed our synagogue. He's paid for our synagogue in Capernaum. Now, their attitude towards this man, it is surprising, since the Romans were the occupying army in Israel, and Jewish people normally disdained all Romans. But again, though this is unusual, this attitude towards this man was unexpected by these Jewish elders. That's not what makes this story so unusual. See, what makes this story so special, so unique, so distinct, so extraordinary, is what we read in verse 9, where Luke tells us that Jesus, he said he marveled at the faith of this Roman centurion, which means that Jesus was astonished. He was amazed to the point, note this, of being surprised when he saw the great faith of this man. Now, quite often we read in the New Testament about people being amazed at Jesus after hearing him teach or seeing one of his miracles, but rarely 
Rarely do we read in the New Testament that Jesus himself was amazed by anyone. And I say rarely because outside of the Lord being amazed at the faith of this Roman centurion, the only other time in the New Testament that we read about Jesus being amazed is when the people of his hometown of Nazareth rejected him. And there he was amazed not at their faith, but rather at their lack of faith. Now, the fact that Jesus could be amazed at anything in the sense that something surprised him may at first seem strange. It may not sound right. It may not sound biblically correct because being God, he's omniscient, which means he knows everything. So how could anything surprise him? But this man's faith did surprise him. That's what it means to marvel, be astonished, to be surprised, to be amazed. It did surprise Jesus. So how could that be? Well, The answer is that in addition to being God, we have to remember that he's also fully human. And therefore, like all of us, he could, and he did at times experience amazement and surprise concerning the uniqueness of Christ being both God and man, and therefore how he could be surprised by the faith of this Roman centurion. One Bible scholar said this, he said, here's a glimpse of Jesus' true humanity, since as God He's omniscient and cannot be surprised by anything. But just as in his humanity, he became tired, hungry, and thirsty, so also could he be astonished at the faith displayed by this Roman soldier. And astonished Jesus was because he said that he had not found such great faith amongst anyone in all of Israel. In other words, this Gentile's faith was greater than any Jewish person's faith that Jesus had encountered. He had seen no Jewish person who had the kind of faith that this Gentile had. And it's this man's great faith that has led some Bible teachers when explaining this passage of Scripture, when teaching on it, they tend to focus primarily on the man's faith as well as his good character from which his faith flowed. And as a result, they spend the bulk of their time when they're teaching this, analyzing, scrutinizing, examining, taking it apart, looking at his faith from all different angles by addressing such issues as what was the supernatural origin of this man's faith? How did this man, being a Gentile, come to believe in Jesus? What kind of work of grace did God do in this man to bring about such great faith? Now, there's no question that this man's faith is exemplary. It's exceptional. Jesus himself said that. And so, based on his love for the Jewish people, his financial generosity, his concern for his slaves' welfare, his character was also exemplary, and we have to readily admit that. However, I want to suggest to you that the primary point, the primary purpose, the primary intent of this story is not to explain the origin of this man's faith. There's nothing in the text that gives us any details about how he came to believe, doesn't tell us how God revealed the truth to him about Jesus, and it doesn't even emphasize the miraculous healing of the man's servant. Rather, the primary intent and purpose and point to this passage, note this, is to call our attention to the object of the man's faith, 
namely Jesus Christ himself. In other words, what's most important about this man's faith is what he believed about Jesus. You see, in recording this incident for us, Luke wants us to know what this Roman centurion's faith, what his faith revealed about Christ so that we will have the same kind of faith in Jesus as he did. This becomes abundantly clear in Matthew's parallel account of the same event recorded for us in chapter 8 of his gospel narrative, where we read that Jesus not only commended this man's faith, but used this opportunity to reveal that in the future, there will be many Gentiles, people like us, people like church age believers, who will have the same kind of faith as this man had. Sadly, the Lord said that there will be many Jewish people who will not have this kind of faith. They will be excluded, therefore, from his kingdom, while many Gentiles will be feasting in the kingdom. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, and in that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the point is that the Lord wants us to have this man's type of faith. So rather than simply telling us a story about Christ's power to heal someone, Luke uses this event to reveal a Gentile's remarkable faith in a remarkable Christ. And in doing so, he not only gives us a model for what our own faith should be like, but in doing so, he presents some insightful and important truths about Christ that we need to believe and we need to live by. You see, what this Gentile man understood and believed about Jesus is exactly what we need to know and believe about him too. And when our faith is like the centurions, we can be certain that it pleases Christ and is commended by Christ. And so this is the kind of faith, as I say, that the Lord wants all of us to have in him. And folks, that ought to motivate us to pay careful attention to what we learn today so that we can put into practice what we learn. So why was this man's faith so highly praised by the Lord? Well, as the passage unfolds, we see that there are two essential truths that this Roman centurion understood and believed about Christ that made his faith so commendable. And these are the same truths, as I say, that we need to understand and believe about our Lord if our faith is to be commended and pleasing to him. With the first essential truth being this, he understood and he believed that Jesus is the exalted one, the only exalted one, not himself. Verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse and the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Now, as the passage begins, Luke sets the scene for us. He sets the context for us in order to explain to us the setting for this miracle to take place. So he sets the scene for us. First thing he tells us is that upon finishing his discourse, what discourse is that? Well, it's what we know to be the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. That's his discourse, his teaching. Right after that, Jesus, we're told, went to the town of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a town located 
on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and therefore it was within walking distance of the hill. It's not really a mountain where Jesus gave the sermon. It's a hill that Jesus gave his sermon on. It's just a, just a brief walk over. Today, nobody really lives in Capernaum, maybe some caretakers, but nobody really lives there. It's not a, a thriving town. It is, though, a major tourist attraction in Israel because it functions as our Lord's headquarters during his ministry in Galilee. So all tourists who are interested in the life and ministry of Jesus, they always go to Capernaum. So having finished his sermon, Jesus took a brief walk, as I say, to the town of Capernaum. And it was while he was in Capernaum that he was made aware of a certain Roman centurion who wanted him to heal one of his slaves who was so ill that he was on the verge of dying. And so we read in verses 2 and 3, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Now, we read about a centurion. Who was a centurion? What was a centurion? A centurion was a soldier. He was an officer in the Roman military, the equivalent of what we would call today a captain or perhaps even a major in the army. And they were called centurions because they normally, though not always, but normally, usually, were in charge of about a hundred soldiers, the word centurion being related to the word for a hundred, like our word century. Now, apparently, there was a unit of Roman soldiers stationed in Capernaum, and this centurion was their commanding officer. Now, ancient historical records reveal that centurions were usually, usually men of high a noble character. They were men of integrity. They were, from a human standpoint, good men, men of a good reputation. And that helps to explain why when every time, without exception, when we read of a centurion mentioned in the New Testament, they're presented in a positive light. Here's what Bible teacher William Hendrickson said about the various Roman centurions we read about in the New Testament. He said, Centurions were generally men of good reputation. Scripture has many good things to say about them. At Calvary, after Jesus had breathed his last, a centurion exclaims, surely this was God's son. The centurion also tells Pilate the truth about the body of Christ, that it was really dead. Another centurion, Cornelius, is described as devout and God-fearing, together with his entire family, held in high regard by all the Jews. And in Acts 27, the centurion Julius was well disposed towards the Apostle Paul. But of all the positive things that we read about in the New Testament concerning these various centurions, this particular centurion stationed in Capernaum that we're reading about in Luke chapter 7 is presented in the most favorable light. Because why? Of his high and noble and honorable character, but especially because of his great faith. And the first indication of his good character is what we read in verse 2 about his compassionate concern for his slave. Luke tells us that he highly regarded his slave. And this was most unusual because although there were exceptions, slave owners, Roman slave owners in the ancient world typically, typically, 
had no regard for their slaves, and certainly no affection, no concern for their slaves' welfare. Most slave owners looked upon their slaves as simply tools to be used. In fact, one Roman writer, a man by the name of Vero, said, he said that the only difference between a slave, an animal, and a cart was that the slave talked. This Roman centurion, though, he was very different. He highly valued his slave, which meant he held him in high esteem. He honored him as a human being. He didn't look at him as a tool to serve his personal needs. He cared about him. This slave was dear to him, and that's why when he became so sick to the point where he was, as we would put it today, at death's door, that his master, the centurion, in desperation turned to Jesus for help. Now, interestingly, Luke, being a physician, being a doctor, he doesn't tell us what was wrong with this slave. All he says is that he was sick and he was about to die. Matthew, though, in his parallel account, reveals that he was paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. In other words, he was stricken with some type of illness that left him paralyzed and in a great deal of pain. And so not knowing what else to do, because he probably had exhausted every type of medical cure known in his day, this centurion asks for Jesus to come and to heal his slave. However, Luke tells us that this centurion didn't come to Jesus in person, but rather he sent a delegation of Jewish elders from Capernaum to speak to the Lord on his account and as his representatives. Notice what we read in verses 4 and 5. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now notice on what basis these Jewish elders make their appeal to Jesus. They petition him to meet the request of the centurion to save the life of his slave on the basis of the good character of this man. They say that this Gentile military officer is worthy of Jesus healing his slave for this very reason. He loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. In other words, this man is deserving, Jesus, of you healing his slave, because though a Gentile, he loves the Jewish people, he loves our people, he's even paid for the synagogue to be built in Capernaum. See, this man, contrary to the typical Roman soldier of his day, who despised the Jewish people, they despised the Romans, the Romans usually despised them. This man was different. He actually loved Israel, which would seem to indicate that he was a God-fearing Gentile. What does that mean? Well, it means that without being an official convert to Judaism, he had a reverence for Israel's God as the one true God. That is to say, he's put away his pagan deities. He believes there's only one God, the God of Israel. He has reverence for this God. But more than believe in the God of Israel, this centurion had apparently come to believe that Jesus was Israel's promised Messiah. How did this happen? Well, being stationed in Capernaum, where Jesus did many of his miracles, there's miracles testifying that he was the Messiah, this centurion no doubt had heard about Jesus and his healing ministry. And so knowing that the Lord had mercifully healed so many others, he now turns to him requesting that he show mercy 
mercy to his dying slave by healing him. You've healed so many others, would you heal my slave? But instead of directly asking Jesus for help, he asked this delegation of Jewish elders from Capernaum to approach the Lord on his behalf. So, the question then is, why did he do it this way? Why? Why didn't he approach Jesus directly? Why did he have to send anybody as his representatives? Well, Luke tells us why in verse 6. Now, Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now, Luke tells us that upon receiving this request from this delegation of Jewish elders to heal the centurion slave, Jesus then just started walking with these men towards the centurion's house with the intention of healing his slave. In fact, Matthew records Jesus as saying, I'll come and heal him. And so together, he and these Jewish elders head off in the direction of the centurion's house. Where it was, we don't know. Could it have been outside of town? Might have been. But as Jesus got closer to the house so that he was not far from the house, as Luke tells us, the centurion then sends another delegation to speak to Jesus. This time, the delegation consists of some of his friends. And here was the message his friends conveyed, what they delivered to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now, why did this man not want Jesus to enter his house? I mean, who, who would want Jesus to come to their house? Well, some people think that the reason this man didn't want Jesus coming into his home is because he knew that any Jewish person who entered a Gentile's home was considered ceremonially defiled and ritually unclean. And so the thinking of some is that out of sensitivity to Jesus being a Jewish rabbi, this centurion told him not to come under his roof in order to avoid defilement. Now, it is true that Jewish men who entered the home of a Gentile, they were considered ritually unclean, but that's not the reason. It's not the reason why this centurion told Jesus to stay away from his house. If that had been the case, then all the centurion had to do was send a message to Jesus, Jesus, stay right where you are, I'm coming out to you, I'll speak to you so we can speak face to face. But that's not what he said, that's not what he did. Luke makes it very clear what was behind this man's insistence that Jesus not enter his house. He tells us that it was because this centurion knew he wasn't worthy for the Lord to enter his home. Here's what he said. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. It had nothing to do with avoiding defilement. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. The text tells us this. In other words, he was overwhelmed, folks, with his own sense of shame and sinfulness because he recognized that in Jesus, he was in the presence of divine holiness. Remember, this man is a military commander. He's used to being in charge of others, but he knows that this Galilean rabbi is more than a rabbi. He knows that he's the supreme commander, and he feels totally unworthy of him. 
See, what this tells us about this man's faith is that he believed that Jesus Christ was the exalted one, so far superior to him that he was convicted of how utterly sinful he was and how unworthy he was to even be in the presence of one who was so high and lofty and grand. Far from being man-centered and self-exalting, his attitude was self-effacing. It was humble. And this is always where true saving faith begins because no one can enter into a saving relationship with Christ without first seeing how sinful and how unfit they are for this relationship. This is the very truth that Jesus taught at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount as we read in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the poor, but the poor in spirit. Those who know that they have nothing, no righteousness in themselves for theirs. And the thought is for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that those who enter his kingdom, they enter it by bowing down first. They enter it by first acknowledging that they're lowly and they're not worthy to enter it because they are spiritually bankrupt, poverty-stricken, having absolutely no merit, no righteousness within themselves to commend them to God. You see, this delegation of Jewish elders who came to Jesus on behalf of the centurion, they were completely wrong. They were absolutely wrong when they told the Lord that this man was worthy. They said, he's worthy for you to grant this to him because he loves our nation, has built our synagogue. They thought, they thought this way because their whole religious system was based on a works righteousness, believing that one could be good enough, that someone could be good enough to be counted worthy for God to grant them salvation, that God would show favor upon them, that one could be worthy enough for this, good enough for this. In the centurion's case, they thought that his high character made him worthy enough for Jesus to feel obligated to heal his servant. Listen, nobody is worthy of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Nobody, nobody is worthy of Christ doing anything for them. Whatever we get from the Lord, we get as gifts of his grace and mercy because of our sinful and corrupt and blatantly rebellious hearts, we deserve absolutely nothing but the full wrath of God's holy judgment. I love the way Ken Hughes described this centurion's attitude of unworthiness. He said this man had obviously seen himself as he really was. He had a wholesome consciousness of his own sin. Once we see ourselves as we are and take into account not only our actions but our corrupt tendencies, foul thoughts, pampered sensualities, baseness and meanness, much of which has never come to the surface, we will avoid ever saying or even imagining, I am worthy. So I ask you, is this how you see yourself? If you sit here today and think about yourself, do you see yourself unworthy of Christ? Or do you see yourself as somehow deserving his love, his concern, his compassion, feeling that somehow he, he owes you whatever you want from him because you're such a good person? The truth is that you are, like all of us, a rebellious sinner. 
and therefore will never have a relationship with Jesus Christ as long as you consider yourself worthy of him. Well, if that's the case, then someone might ask, then how do you come to a point in your life where you begin to see yourself as unworthy of Christ, as someone in need of his salvation? Or perhaps a Christian might ask, how do I cultivate, how do I develop, how do I nurture a greater sense of my unworthiness of Christ? Well, it doesn't come by constantly beating yourself up emotionally or by a type of morbid introspection of your sins, no. No, it comes, note this, it comes simply by comparing yourself to Jesus Christ, by looking unto Christ, evaluating your character in light of Christ's character. You see, it's in light of his perfect righteousness, his majestic authority, his infinite power, his unconditional love, his eternal wisdom, and all his other perfect qualities that we see the truth about ourselves, that we are horrific sinners, totally corrupt, totally depraved, and we are overwhelmed by it. And that's when we see ourselves as unfit and unworthy of him. Folks, this is what genuine humility is all about. It comes from seeing Christ and not ourselves as exalted and supreme and matchless And everyone who has ever trusted Christ for salvation has been humbled in this way. And therefore, they do see themselves as totally undeserving of this glorious Christ and his salvation. This was precisely John the Baptist's perspective. When speaking of Jesus, he said this. He said he wasn't worthy to even untie his sandals. This, by the way, was said by the greatest man who ever lived. That's what Jesus said about him. And this man said, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his sandals. And why did John feel this way about himself? Was it because he had a very low self-esteem and inferiority complex? Because after all, he grew up isolated in the wilderness. He wasn't a city boy. He didn't live in the big cities. He was out in the wilderness and he had a low self-esteem. No, no. It was simply because he understood who Christ was. This is what John said. John chapter 3, verses 30 and 31. He must increase, the Baptist said, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth. He speaks of the earth. He's referring to himself. He who comes from heaven is above all. That's John's testimony. John recognized that Jesus is above all, exalted over everyone and everything. Again, I ask you, is this how you see yourself? It should be. Contrary to what you may think about yourself, you may not say this, but I'm going to say it, you are not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around you. Jesus is the exalted one. The world revolves around him. He is the center of the universe. He's the supreme being, and we are totally unworthy of him and undeserving of anything he gives to us. See, the biggest problem we face is that we think too highly of ourselves, and we think too often about ourselves, don't we? Years ago, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said these words. He said, we must become detached from self. Self is the subtle problem that works itself out in self-pity, self-protection, self-concern, hypersensitivity, and the rest. Then comes jealousy, envy, feelings, 
grieved and, and hurt and all the rest of it. I recall many years ago speaking to a non-Christian who I had established a relationship with and was witnessing to him. And we were having lunch together and I was, I don't remember the exact words, but speaking to him about Jesus. And he said, uh, why does God make such a big deal about people worshiping him? Why, why him alone? Why him? Why should he only be worshipped? Why should he only be thought of? See, this man was accusing God of being on an ego trip, of being so self-centered that he would demand that everybody focus on him, only worship him. And this bothered this man, obviously because he wanted to be worshipped. But my response to him was simply that God is the only one in the universe who's worthy of being worshipped. None of us are. None of us are. We worship him because he's worthy of it, and therefore he has a right to demand our worship. Nobody else does. He's worthy to receive all praise, all adoration, and we are completely unworthy due to our sin. And that's how this Roman centurion saw it. That's why he sent a delegation of Jewish elders to Jesus instead of going himself. And that's why he turned Jesus away from entering his home, because Knowing his sinful heart, he considered himself totally undeserving, unworthy of being even in the presence of one who was so exalted. But then, this man proceeds to say something that demonstrates the depth and the insight of his faith, which leads us to see a second essential truth about what he knew, understood, believed about Jesus. Not only did he know that Jesus is the exalted one, but secondly, he came to understand that Jesus has unlimited authority. Notice verses 7 and 8. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, having just told Jesus that he was unworthy of him coming to his house, this centurion now tells the Lord through his friends, it isn't even necessary for him to enter his home in order to heal his servant. He is confident that all the Lord needs to do is just speak a word and the healing will take place. And he proceeds to explain that the reason he knows this to be the case is because as a soldier, he understands how authority works. As a military officer, he knows what it's like to be under the authority of someone of a higher rank than he has. He also knows what it's like to be in authority over soldiers with a lower rank than he has and to be master of a slave. So that he just gives them an order and the order is immediately carried out. So he understands how authority works. And therefore, he has absolute confidence that if Jesus just gives the word, just gives the command to heal his slave, then his slave will be healed. Now, upon hearing this centurion, hearing what he believes about him, Luke tells us in verse 9 how Jesus responds. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And he turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. 
Now Luke tells us that after listening to what this centurion said by way of his friends, Jesus marveled. And as I told you, it means he was surprised. He was amazed. He was astonished. We would say today he was just blown away by this. And what caused him to react like this was that he realized that this man, being a Gentile, had more insight and more understanding of him and greater faith in him than any Jewish person he had come across in all the land of Israel. So exactly what was it about this man's faith that impressed Jesus? It wasn't merely that he believed that Jesus could heal his slave from a distance without entering his home. It was that he believed that Jesus had the absolute unlimited authority to command whatever he wanted done and it would be done. In other words, he had come to believe that Jesus was more than a miracle worker, more than a Galilean rabbi. He had come to believe that Jesus Christ was God Almighty who did exactly what he wanted to do. And if he wanted to heal his servant, all he needed to do was just give an order for the healing to take place and the healing would take place. And he believed that Jesus was deity. Now, I don't think he had all his theology worked out, but he believed that he was God and that he had unlimited authority. You see, the centurion, knowing that he, even with his own very limited earthly authority, he understood that he had soldiers under him who obeyed his every word. He then logically put it together that Jesus, being God, had unlimited divine heavenly authority, and therefore whatever order he gave it must come to pass. He sees him as God. And why is Luke telling us this? With all the multitude of healings that Jesus did, why this one? We understand that Luke was led by the Spirit of God. We understand this is how inspiration works. God revealed this to him. But nonetheless, Luke wanted too, to put this in his book. Why? Why did he feel compelled to tell us about this incident. It's because he wants all of us, as his readers, to know and believe the truth that this centurion believed about Christ, that he is God and therefore as God, he has infinite power, infinite authority over everything, including diseases, demons, nature. In other words, this centurion came to the conclusion that Jesus was God and therefore everything was under his sovereign authority. This is what he believed about Jesus, and therefore he acted upon this belief. This wasn't simply a doctrine to him. This was life. He said, Lord, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. Folks, this is why Jesus praised his faith. Because even though he had many Jewish followers who believed in him, not one of them, up to this point at least, grasped the fact that he could do whatever he chose to do without any limitations. And that's why Jesus wanted those around him to hear this. Notice, notice verse 9 again. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. Notice, and he turned and said to the crowd that was following him, this is the Jewish crowd. I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that Jesus didn't say that he 
hadn't found any faith in Israel. That's important we understand this. He didn't say he hadn't found any faith in Israel. Certainly, he had disciples who believed in him. Certainly, his apostles, excluding Judas, had faith in him, faith in him as the Messiah. But their faith was small, and their faith was limited, and their faith was weak. Because at this point, they really did not believe that he had full sovereign authority over everything, including the winds, the waves of the sea. We know this is precisely the truth because we read these words in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Notice this, you men of little faith. He didn't say you men of no faith. You men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now Jesus rebuked these men, as men of little faith, because although they had faith in him, their faith, as I say, it was small at this point. It was limited. It was, it was weak when it should have been large and it should have been great. After all, they had seen him do miracle after miracle, and yet they were afraid of dying at sea because it never dawned on them that Jesus was capable of calming the winds and the waves on a stormy lake. See, folks, though saving faith doesn't have to be great faith. I want you to understand that. Saving faith doesn't have to be great faith. It can be small faith. It just has to have Jesus as the object of faith for salvation. It can even be faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, Jesus said. However, the kind of faith that Christ wants to develop in us is to have a great faith that trusts him as the supreme one, as the sovereign one, as the one who is over all and in control of all the events of life, who never makes a mistake. There are no accidents. There are no, fortunately, this happened type of deals. There's no luck. He's sovereign over all. It's the kind of faith that expresses itself like the prophet Jeremiah, when he said in the Old Testament book named after him in chapter 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Now, of course, all of us who know Christ, we would verbally agree with that. We would acknowledge that. Perhaps some of you said amen to that. If Jack Jenkins was here, he would say, do I get an amen? But he's not. We would all say, of course, I believe that. I believe that he is the sovereign Lord with unlimited authority, unlimited power. But so often we deny this by the way we think, by the way we, we live, by the way we act. We deny this truth and reveal that we really, in the depth of our being, don't believe this, especially in those difficult, dark moments of life. And that means, in reality, our faith is small, and it's weak. In addition, there are many Christians who have been poorly taught. They have poor theology, and therefore they believe that man's will, which they call man's free will, can frustrate and overcome the sovereign purposes of God. 
that somehow God's purposes are at the mercy of man's will, meaning that if a man decides to rebel against God's plan, then God's plan is in jeopardy of being carried out. But scripture emphatically, dogmatically, teaches just the opposite, that God is absolutely sovereign and that he is full and complete authority over everything, including man's rebellion. Listen to what the Lord says about his sovereignty in Isaiah chapter 46, the end of verse 9 and verse 10. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Did you see that? My purpose, God said, will be established and I will accomplish all, not some, but all my good pleasure. Again, here's what we read in Psalm 76, verse 10. God is so sovereign that he even makes the wrath of man bring him praise. What does that mean? Well, it means that he overrules man's rebellion to bring about his will. If you want to see an illustration in scripture of this, of God overruling man's rebellion, then read the book of Jonah. Jonah was a rebellious prophet who instead of obeying God to go to Nineveh to call the Assyrians to repentance, he pitted his will against God's by heading in the opposite direction in order to try to avoid God's will. Why did he do this? Because he didn't want God to grant them deliverance. He wanted God to punish these wicked people. So he heads in the opposite direction. He's not going to go there to preach repentance. But God overruled this prophet's rebellion and his disobedience. How? Listen to this. His sovereignty is so great. He sends a horrific storm at sea. He uses pagan sailors in his life. He then sends a great fish to preserve Jonah from drowning by swallowing him. And later vomiting the prophet out somewhere near Nineveh, where he goes, and what does he do? He preaches repentance to them. And so, in the end, even though Jonah didn't like the results, he obeyed God. He obeyed by preaching to the Assyrians, and they did repent at his preaching. And so God did accomplish his will, triumphing over Jonah's disobedience. And why? Because he is totally sovereign and therefore his authority is unlimited. No one and no set of circumstances can prevent his decreed will from taking place. That's precisely what the centurion recognizes in Jesus. He sees him as God. He sees him as the exalted one. Therefore, all he had to do It's just say the word and his his slave would be healed. His word was the supreme and sovereign command of the universe. That's how the man sees it. And folks, once again, I say that one reason this incident is recorded in scriptures for us to see that this is the kind of faith in Christ that God wants his people to have, that God wants you to have, because this is the faith that is based upon the truth of who Jesus Christ really is. This is faith that sees Christ as sovereign over all the events of life, including storms, illnesses, deaths, 
difficult circumstances, personal trials, people conflicts, and everything else in life. So, I say again, is that the way you view Jesus? Or do you merely confess that you believe doctrinally that he has unlimited power, but live as if he doesn't? That's the problem we have. Sadly, that is the way many Christians are. They have a correct theological view of Christ, but by the way they think and live, they deny the truth about Christ. And those believers who live as if our Lord's power is limited and can be overruled by man's will, they not only sin against the Lord by having a faulty and very low view of him, but they constantly live with worries and fears and doubts and anxieties and it's so unnecessary. We all battle that, but it's so unnecessary because regardless of what anyone thinks about Jesus, the truth is he is supreme. He is sovereign over everything. It's exactly what this Gentile Roman centurion believed about Jesus, and that's why he marveled. Jesus marveled at his faith. But more than marvel at his faith, the Lord honored his great faith by healing his slave. Notice what we read in verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Interestingly, Luke doesn't reveal whether or not Jesus actually spoke a word of healing or whether he simply healed this man's slave by just willing him to be healed. We, we don't know. We're not told. But what we do know is that when the friends of the centurion returned to his house, they found his slave healed, healed from his paralysis, out of his pain, in totally good health. Now, I must say this because when you're dealing with healing, it's important to bring this, this up. Though we know from other passages of Scripture that Jesus doesn't always heal someone who is ill, regardless of how great their faith is or how great the faith might be of the people who are praying for their healing. You'll recall that the Apostle Paul had great faith, but he wasn't healed of the thorn in his flesh. However, however, in this case, the Lord sovereignly honored the faith of this centurion by healing his servant. He, it's up to him. He is sovereign of who he heals and who he doesn't heal. But regardless of how Jesus chooses to answer your prayers or to work in your life, the message of this passage is clear. It's that, like this centurion, you are to have great faith in your great Lord. Believing that he alone has no rivals, he's exalted, and he has unlimited authority to do whatever he chooses to do. And so we look to him, we trust him, even when we don't understand what he's doing, and we recognize that we are so unworthy of him. And yet, though we're so unworthy of him, in his love and mercy, he has provided a way for sinners to be reconciled to him. Because on the cross, Jesus was judged in the place of sinners. And those who turn from their sin and turn to Christ in repentance and faith and place their trust in him to save them from the wrath of God, they will experience salvation. Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will never cast out. 
will experience salvation. Why? Not because we're deserving of it. For by grace are you saved through faith, and then not of yourselves, but simply because and only because he's merciful. He's merciful. If that's been your experience, and you know Christ as your Savior, your Lord, then praise him and thank him for his mercy in your life and ask him to deepen your faith, to help you to have great faith because he's a great God. But if that has not been your experience and you've never trusted Christ for salvation, if you've never come to this wonderful Savior, this exalted one, this sovereign one, this loving Savior for your salvation, then I urge you to do so right now, not later, not tonight, not tomorrow, right now. Today is the day of your salvation, the scripture says. Call upon him to save you. Come to him as unworthy as you are, recognizing you deserve Nothing from him, but he offers you, his arms are stretched out to you to offer you the free gift of eternal life, which is salvation in him. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about this, then when we close the service in a moment, I'll be up here at the front. Just feel free to come up and, and let me know, and I'll put you in touch with one of, our, one of our pastors. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this magnificent passage of your word. Thank you for leading Luke, to write about this. Lord, it exalts you. It highlights how magnificent you are. And I pray for every Christian here that you would help us to have the kind of faith that this man had, the kind of faith that sees you exalted with absolute unlimited authority to do whatever you choose to do. We put no limits on you, Lord. So nurture our faith. We don't want to be men and women of little faith. And Lord, I pray for those who have never placed their trust in you. May this time, this moment, this sacred moment be the time of their salvation, that they would call upon you to save them, recognizing that they are helpless and hopeless apart from Christ's death on the cross for their sins. I pray that you'll bring about repentance and faith in their hearts as they turn away from their sin and turn to you to be saved. Lord, we thank you that we could be together. Thank you for letting me come back to proclaim your word once again. In Jesus' name, amen.